The Glenn Show is brought to you by the Manhattan Institute. Please consider becoming a paid subscriber at glennlowry.substack.com. As a subscriber, you will receive new episodes on Mondays instead of Fridays and get access to exclusive content, ticket pre-sales to live events, monthly Q&As with Glenn Lowry and John McWhorter, and other benefits. Your contribution will also help to fund grassroots initiatives that empower Black development across the country as we donate 10% of our profits to the Woodson Center. Thank you. Hello out there. This is Glenn Lowry. You have tuned into The Glenn Show. I'm with John McWhorter. Every other week, we talk at The Glenn Show about race, politics, and culture. John's with the New York Times, and he teaches at Columbia University. I'm with the Manhattan Institute, where I'm a senior fellow, and I, I teach at Brown University. Um, the Manhattan Institute sponsors The Glenn Show, and you can support The Glenn Show if you are so inclined by becoming a paying subscriber at glennlowry.substack.com. I'm only going to say it once. But go ahead if you feel so inclined. So, hey, John, what's up? How you doing, man? Hi, Glenn. You know, I'm noticing something. What's You're that? now saying Manhattan Institute first. What, what's, ah. what's, what's that? I mean, uh, I don't know if you want to talk about it. but No, uh, we could talk. We could talk. That's me creeping into retirement slowly but surely. I mean, I have been spending the last week packing my corner office Oh. With the beautiful built-in bookcases. You remember back in the old days when we read Blogging Heads and the scene behind me was a wall of books? That's my office that well. at Brown. That's my office. And it's got bay windows and it's right on the corner of this historic building that used to be the university's library way, way back when. It has a beautiful forum, an alcove, a, you know, whatever. It's a beautiful building. Robinson Hall. I'm room 105, Robinson Hall. That's one of the best offices in the building. Uh, <laughs> corner and yeah. and I have eased myself into semi retirement. I only have time at Brown now, and since COVID, I don't know about you, but I've been working more remotely than ever, and am almost never in that office. I work from home. I go in and teach my classes. I do my office hours by Zoom. I mean, I you know I see people, but not like in the old days. Something really happened with COVID. So anyway, long story short is they want their office. Um, my chairman was very, very gracious. He said, that if you is... want to stay, if you're going to use it, no problem. Believe me, just, just tell me what you want to do. You want to have the office, you want to use the office, but I know I'm not going to really be using that office. I'm not going to be going in every day at 8 o'clock. I'm not going to be hanging around the coffee room. I'm not going to be, you know, putting my feet up on the desk. I'm just not going to use that office that much. I'm going to go in to get my mail and go into, if necessary, for a meeting. But I know I'm not going to use the office. So I've had to give up the office. That's a long way of saying <laughs> that I packed my office, man. Thousands of books. I've had all my papers and files, all my notes accumulated over decades. I've been going through boxes of stuff. And memo, 1999, on a certain question of a certain research project that I was working out with my friend Andy Weiss, my colleague at Boston University. Yeah. yeah, yeah, the real note, you know, the real note. And going through books, yeah, God. So these books are going into boxes. The boxes are going to have to be moved. It's a nightmare, and I'm getting rid of a lot of stuff. Anyway, long and short of it is, as I shift gears here in my mid-70s, 
Um, you know, maybe I'm shifting my emphasis and professional identity just a little bit. I'm still the Merton Stoltz professor, hopefully, and I'm confidently emeritus when the time comes. But that's what's going on. It's funny, you get me thinking about um, something I've just been doing over the past couple days. And this is, I have to make sure not to make this too heavy for the format, but I, um, I have, by Columbia standards, I have a pretty good office. It's in a kind of an off building, but I have a big one and I got these, they gave me these bookshelves that are much too nice and much too expensive. And I just, I just allowed it, but it's only, there are only three of them and they're big, but you know, you accumulate books after a while you get sent all this stuff. And I like books physically, so I always put it up there on the shelf. And I I realized after COVID, this semester in particular, that I have too many books and that a lot of them I'm really never going to touch and probably shouldn't have kept anyway. And so I thought, since yeah. I'm going to be having more books, let's get rid of about 100 books. So I went through and picked out the ones from 1989 and the ones that aren't any good and the duplicates and everything. And it kind of got me thinking. And I won't take up too much time with this, but you talk about like the end of an era. Yeah. And it got me thinking that I'm in bad odor among certain linguists these days. Everything changed once you and I started screaming in the summer of 2020. And there's now a young cadre of linguists. It's not very many people, but who have decided that I'm one of the field's public enemies, number one, because I am anti-woke and talk about wokeness in such a such a con contemptful way that they feel insulted and they don't want me representing them and they don't like that I represent linguistics to you know the, the world and the United States to the extent that I do and that's fine in itself but it's meant that for example the linguistic society of america stripped me of my publicity committee headship because of the demands of this particular group the idea being that I'm just too radioactive to head a committee. And, you know, the sad thing about this is that it's because of how I feel about these issues as opposed to grammatical analysis and things that linguists study. And or there's nothing that sociolinguists think or do that I've ever had any problem with. It's that I'm just not cool. And as you can imagine, you know, none of these claims make a dent in me. They're wrong. It's as simple as that. But it does mean that, um, you know, I used to host something called Five Minute Linguist, where it's this kind of game show for linguistics. I was the person who would emcee it. And to be honest, I'm good at that kind of thing. It, it was a good event. And no one ever said anything outright, but I no longer host it. They've got somebody else who's much more correct than I am doing it. And I've had to let my membership lapse. And I haven't been public about it. I didn't make any big noise, but I'm no longer a member of the Linguistic Society of America. And it's because of how I feel about George Floyd and reparations and cultural appropriation and the theatricality of wokeness. Now, my career is not affected. I'm not going to lose my job. But I was going through all these books and I was thinking, wow, not only am I never going to have the place in academic linguistics that I had before, but I thought in Creole studies, Creole studies is completely choked by wokeness teaching that you're not allowed to say certain things. You're not allowed to say that Haitian Creole is a complex language, just like any language, but because it's new, it's not as complex as French. You're not allowed to say that. And if you do say it, 
you're a pariah. And I kind of thought, I've been studying Creole languages now for 34 years. I am frankly one of the world's maybe 100 experts on those languages. And once again, I'm not an absolute pariah. I'm the book review editor of the leading journal in Pidgin and Creole Studies. I get invited to the occasional Creole thing, but you know, that's actually only from my posse. I'm not invited by anybody else. And in general, most people in the Creole studies field think of me as somebody who is clever, but who is just not with the program. And of course, the worst thing about things like this is that nobody who thinks that of you actually reads your work because they think it wouldn't be worth it to put forth the effort. But, you know, I haven't said half of the things that they think I say. So I was going through all these books and I was thinking in a kind of an autumnal way. I entered this field in my late 20s thinking of myself as studying something interesting and trying to make a little bit of noise. And in a way, it was a failure because here I am in this subfield where it's considered the good thing to roll your eyes at the mention of my name. And I've done a lot of work. I've written books. I've written articles. I'm proud of them. I think everybody thinks of me as somebody who has a certain solidity. But I'm just wrong, according to, say, nine out of ten of them. And the simple fact is I'm not, and there's nothing I'll ever be able to do about it. And so it led me to think, I think you're better than me on this, because you wouldn't think this about your economics. Like, there's some black economists who don't like you, but the field in general has great respect for you. Linguistics, you know, if people say over 70 get me because they're not as affected by these politics. <laughs> it's about, it's the people who are getting on, if I may. But in general, I will probably yeah. never again be invited by a linguistics department to give a talk on my work. That has dried up after 2020 completely. It's only Europe now. We are more exotic. And I am kind of thinking, I love linguistics, but it no longer loves me and it never will. And I was thinking maybe I should get rid of more of these books. So that was a feeling I had um, a couple days ago. And I'll get past it. I like my books and I'm going to keep writing. But still. Well, thanks for sharing, my brother. <laughs> and, I, and I feel for you. I feel you and I feel for you. I was going to ask you, goes. though. I'm I'm curious, and I, you know I don't know a whole lot about linguistics. I did I did read a book or two. I read Steven Pinker's The Language Instinct, for That's example. That's the one to read. Yeah, and I wonder if Pinker were here and asked, you know, what is John McWhorter's contribution to the study of sociolinguistics in the case of Creole languages? What would he say? What do you imagine he would say, or what would you say to the to the lay uh, person like myself in our audience about? what it is to lament by the fact that you're being written out of the community because your scholarly contribution must have a certain resonance. And I, I don't doubt that it does, but I don't quite understand the nature of it. Well, it's, it's all, it's just stuff that's predictable if you know about the stuff we talk about. I think Pinker is somebody who is very much up my alley and he's a supporter of me. And he would say that I have had some you know, useful ideas about what happens when languages come together and how they change. But it might not surprise you to know that Pinker is being treated the same way as me. There is an effort within Linguistic Society of America to strip him of his epaulets as well because he is not sufficiently woke and therefore shouldn't be representing the field. So it's the same thing. I would say of Pinker that, for example, the book that you, you read, a lot of the research has changed over the past 30 years, but he was summarizing the case for there being a genetic endowment that allows us to use language that animals do not have. And the evidence for it isn't as compelling now as it was when, when Pinker wrote mm. that book. But that book was brilliant. 
And, you know, there are brilliant people who are working on that very question now, and Steven Pinker has always been one of them. And frankly, one of the ones who was more interested in making linguistics something compatible with biology, anthropology, and psychology than a lot of the people who specialize more closely in that work. And so, yeah, um, Pinker is, 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 is undergoing exactly the same treatment. The, the linguistics field, unfortunately, has a major problem with what I hate to say are two of its most prominent members, and one of them is even black. And so it's just, um, it's not so now, a pretty state of affairs. Now, politics is no stranger to linguistics. I mean, I'm thinking of the case of the great Noam Chomsky, you know, father of universal grammar, and I gather the theoretician who gives a foundation to Pinker's speculation about the in inherent nature of linguistic facility mm -hmm. in humans. But uh, he had a politics, or has, He's still with us. Noam Chomsky has, he's, he's got a sharp elbow politics, but they, they don't mind him. Well, they don't mind him because, of course, he's hard, hard left. So he's, he's just correct, as opposed to Pinker uh, and me, who are, are centrist empiricists, and therefore, you know, we're, we're not going to drink the Kool-Aid, and that's considered a problem. Another one is George Lakoff, who has never I've been as big a name as Pinker, but once again, his politics are classic, you know, almost old left and so he doesn't offend anybody with his politics, as opposed to we, we contrarians. So, yeah. Well, I don't suffer the same fate. No, I am appreciated by my colleagues. Uh, not so much by the, you know, diversity, equity, and inclusion brigade within the economics profession, but by, you know, my peers, broadly speaking, with all the accolades, I won't list them to, to support that claim. Um, but, when the American Economics Association puts out a recommended syllabus for reading on race and inequality, do you know that <laughs> your humble servant's life labor with article after article in the top five journals and with books to, to boot are somehow not mentioned <laughs> by the association because the committee to whom was delegated the responsibility to draft that syllabus is dominated by the usual suspects of the DEI brigades. And Thomas Sowell, Glenn Lowry have no place within their, you know, halls of, uh, of uh, canonical reference. <laughs> Damn. It's just, it's not, it's not right. That's really just not right. Or, you know, we can complain mutually. Black English <laughs> is something else. But not for long, else. folks. We're not going to do this all, all program. Go ahead. No. Go ahead. Black English is the same thing. In terms of teaching the public about why Black English is cool, I've now played a major role at this point. And yet I read things written by people on Black English, both pop and not, and you can tell that they cringe to ever mention my name, despite the fact that now I've got kind of a stack of writings about it because I'm bad. And... That, you know, life They should goes like on. your position. If I understand your position, it's that it's a language. It's, it's got a lot of complexity and nuance to it. It's not mistaken or broken English. It has its own uh, kind of uh, inherent uh, dynamic. Uh, not and, good enough because I don't understand societal racism and therefore I'm bad. And yeah. therefore, even the work that they agree with, they don't want to spread it around too much because they don't want to call attention to my name. There's a black linguist who um, on her Twitter site lists her three favorite linguistics podcasts. 
Mine is not one of them, and <laughs> I'm a fellow black person. And frankly, my language podcast is, I'm, I'm not going to blow my own horn, but it's up there. But not, not even going to mention it because I'm bad. And I know she thinks I'm bad because I've written, I've read other things she said about me on Twitter. So yeah, this we shouldn't do too much more of this. But. This is Lexicon Valley that you're talking about. Yes, Lexicon Valley, for which I just recorded the 173rd episode that I've done every two weeks since 2016. And it's a fun little show. I'm not going to write a memoir, but if you listen to all of them, you would have my autobiography, basically. And every two weeks I do it, it's a, it's, it's a hoot. That's my other podcast. This is this is my podcast, too, I feel like, although it's yours. And so, yeah, I appear with you every two weeks. And then the other week, I'm doing Lexicon Valley. Our Magnificent Bastard Tongue. Isn't that one of your books, John? That was one of my favorites. Yeah, that one is about the history of English, and it, it has some lessons to teach. Um, that one hasn't gotten me in any trouble, luckily. But, yeah. We are in the presence of a major scholar in his field, everybody. He's not tooting his own horn, but we should, you know, oh, you pause know, for a moment. <laughs> one other thing I want to get in. Economics values you for what you do because of its quality. I doubt that even if I were considered a wonderful person with the politics of a rose, that linguistics in general would evaluate my work on the level that yours is. So I don't want to make it sound like I just assume that I am this top level linguist who would be getting all these accolades. The issue is that I get none at this point, that I don't get anything, whereas I watch people who frankly have not produced as much or had as many ideas as you say. And, you know, sometimes they, they've had even longer than I have to prove it, getting these basic kinds of accolades, whereas I get nothing. And that nothing is a statement at this point. Are you a fellow of the American Academy? Of the what? American Academy of Arts and Sciences. Nobody would ever put me up for that. At least not from my own field. That's the sort of thing that I mean. So, yeah, it, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't happen. That's an oversight. You know, Stanley Crouch was, it, uh, the late, great Stanley Crouch was an great. I am, as it happens, a fellow of the Academy. I, I, I've been since, I don't know, 2002 or something like that. Mm-hmm. And uh, you go to the inductions, and the inductions happen at the Academy's headquarters, which happened to be located in Cambridge, Massachusetts, which is an hour's drive from where I live. So I was at, I was there when Stanley was inducted. I was so proud of him, you know, a man of letters. Oh, you're you're worthy of that honor, John. Columbia University's provost office should have a functionary whose job it is to maximize the number of honorific societies to which their faculty members get. I know Brown University has one. I, I know a lot of places have them because, you know, these society things uh, help to contribute to the prestige. Somebody ought to put, put a process in motion. You know, folks, I'm going to break the fourth wall for a second. I will be right back. <laughs> this is an opportunity for soliloquy, poignant listening to John discuss his uh, career. And I, I resonate because having just completed my memoir draft, forthcoming May 2024 from Norton and Company. I've been contemplating some of the same questions. To be an economist, to be a Black economist, these are things I've been contemplating. John, I was just filling in, you know, in your absence, your brief absence, uh, just saying that writing the memoir has caused me to think about my own professional identity in ways that correlate with the kinds of reflections that you were just engaged in. But that's not what we came here to talk about. Well... Jordan Neely in the New York subway is you had a piece 
in your weekly column in the Times in which you address yourself to that thorny question. Yeah, it's a, it's a tough one. What it comes down to is, is this. You're sitting on the train. Somebody busts in. They're traveling between the cars, which you're not supposed to do. Somebody busts in. You know just from the sound of how the door does it what kind of person it's going to be. There's a slam. And then there's this person who is out of their mind through no fault of their own, and they're going to walk up and down the car scaring people. From what I see with a lot of these people, they're lonely. This is the closest thing they get to human contact. And if it's scaring people and making people turn away, you can get to a point where that kind of negative attention is better than none at all. I can even put myself in the head of somebody like that. It's what many kids do. So, nevertheless, they're caught up in that. And they're scaring people. They're yelling into people's faces. They say fuck and motherfucker all the time. Fuck the fuck, fuck, fuck. Sometimes they ball up their fists. And they're scary. And, you know, I'm a man, I'm 6'1", and I can still more or less take care of myself, I think. But most people are not men who are about 6'1", who can probably take care of themselves, they think. And one of the hardest things is when you're doing this and you've got your kids with you. I have two girls, one's 8, one's 11. And here comes this person ranting through no fault of their own. But it's scary. And then you have... A story about Jordan Neely, and yes, he was a Michael Jackson impersonator, that's very sweet. But when he was off his meds, he was scary as fuck, and he had punched an old woman in the face and broken how her do, How do you know that? Excuse me for interrupting. How, how oh. do you know how he was when he was off his meds? Because it's reported that he did things such as punch a 67-year-old woman in the face and break the bones in her face. And yeah. I'm also extrapolating maybe a little bit artistically, but... I've seen that person, that person okay. and what he was doing, the things he was yelling. Any New Yorker read, it, read that and thought, oh, yeah, that person. Okay. And so, you know, he's 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 scary. And the good thinking on social media was often that no one should have restrained him. Now, what happened is that this ex-Marine, Daniel, Daniel Penny, Penny, restrained him with, you know, the worst that the chokehold held it too long and killed him. That is a tragedy. Jordan Neely did not deserve anything like that. He didn't deserve to be physically injured. But what gets me is the idea that nobody should have even restrained him. I think there are people who are thinking that to be in a society riven with inequality and therefore naturally a highly faulty medical system for psychiatric care, to be a member of that society means that you deserve Jordan Neely in the subway. They were all supposed to let him show his behind and scare half of the car half to death because we live in a society in which we tolerate this kind of inequality. It's our just desserts. I read a well-known columnist who was writing that Neely shouldn't have been restrained. No, I highly suspect, I know that that columnist doesn't live in New York City, and I highly suspect that that columnist doesn't have kids. No, we need to have a procedure where someone like him can be taken away. We cannot think of him as, you know, mentally alternate or something like that. So that's why I wrote my piece about Jordan Neely, because I was listening to all these people on social media making it seem like no one should have touched Jordan Neely. That's taking the left too far left. And especially as a dad, where I've stopped taking my girls on the subway any more than necessary, and I'm taking Ubers, spending a lot of money doing it, because I don't want them, one, to get hurt, or two, to watch this, which... 
you know, frankly, an eight-year-old shouldn't have to watch that, and it's at the point where you can't avoid it. So I wrote a piece. Okay, well, um, what's his name? Daniel Penny uh, intervened, restrained uh, Jordan Neely with a chokehold, and Neely later expired. Uh, Alvin Bragg, your uh, Manhattan district attorney, has charged uh, Penny. Uh, he was actually, you know, Pert walked in and cameras caught him and it's on YouTube and everything like that. And it brings up the Bernard Getz case. Do you remember the Bernard Getz case from 30 well, years ago or 35 years ago? It's a long time, man. It's a long time. But that was subway vigilante Bernard Getz, who uh, I gather was being accosted by some guys and he pulled out a pistol and he shot him up. And, uh, you know... I actually don't know what the disposition of that was. Was he convicted? Uh, did he serve time in prison? I don't uh, remember either. I but this was at a time when crime rate was high in New York. Street crime. Did people he kill were concerned one? About it. Did he kill one of those guys? Gosh, I should know. We could look it up. We should uh, have looked it up. Yeah. You know, uh, quite possibly he did. I mean, he shot. He shot him. I guess we could look it up. I'm going to look it up. Keep going. Keep going. Yeah. Yeah. No, but I'm just saying. Uh, there was a kind of citizen's arrest quality to the intervention, and the intervention was kinetic. You know, it, I mean, it, it wasn't just saying, stop it. It was, it was restraining uh, the man. I'm not, I wasn't there. I'm not judging it. I'm not saying it was necessary. I'm not saying it was unnecessary. I mean, I, I don't know. Uh, but but I'm, I am saying a, a district attorney has decided to bring charges, and it has become the case uh, emblematic of a larger cultural tension around maintenance of order in cities and policing and law and, and whatnot. And there is a racial dimension to it because the guy who, uh, Daniel uh, uh, Penny, who's been charged, who did the chokehold, was white, a, a veteran, uh, ex-Marine, um, and our hapless uh, Michael, George, uh, Michael <laughs> Jackson imitator, <laughs> Uh, Jordan Neely is a black guy. They are usually black guys, are they not? One hates to say it, but they almost always are. Yes. Sometimes it's a Latino guy. Every now and then it's a crabby white guy yelling, fuck, 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 fuck. And often he has a political agenda. But usually it's, it's black men, unfortunately. Okay. What'd you find out about Getz? Getz um, went free. Um, after a while and has lived a life of mild celebrity and even ran for mayor in 2001. There were four guys. None of them were killed, although one of them was hurt enough to be permanently brain damaged. It happened in 1984. I lived in New York from 85 to 88, and that was a recent and often discussed incident at the time. Yeah. Almost 40 years ago. Uh Okay, so... You know, I can imagine what the other side of the argument, you mentioned a columnist unnamed that uh, had uh, made the case that we owe him deference in virtue of the fact that we collaborate in effect in an unfair system of unequal provision. Which is what and, the columnist implied. He didn't okay, lay it out, but it's, you could tell. <laughs> you know, uh, what about that? I mean, the mentally ill, recourse, homelessness, no treatment. Uh, a mismanaged, and even if you say, well, there was treatment available, but he wouldn't stay in the treatment facility or whatever, uh, you know, you're, you're not managing the problem. Uh, are you saying there's nothing that can be done about the homeless? 
So we live in a society in which there are homeless on the street. I mean, I pass them here in Providence, Rhode Island, uh, standing in the intersection with a bucket, waiting for people to drop money in the bucket. Some of these people, they're not particularly aggressive. I'm not, I'm not saying that they're like the squeegee guys that are getting all up in your face. But, you know, and, and sometimes they're very pathetic and heartrending. And sometimes it's a little unnerving, to be frankly uh, frank with you. It's a little bit unnerving. The person's approaching your vehicle or whatever, but... They're homeless. They, they don't have any place to go. They're hopeless. They're confused. They're needy. Um, and they are an inconvenience. You know, they're being in your faces unpleasant, you know, and, and you arrogate to yourself the right to not have to be experiencing that unpleasantness, even though you're not doing anything and neither are your representatives to remedy this underlying. It, it is... It is something of a problem, isn't it? I mean, to reckon what the ethical posture is to take. You want to protect your children from this encroachment, and yet you don't want to be without some sense of compassion or whatever. This is disgusting, and yet you're not entirely proud of being disgusted. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> you know, it's, um, there are all sorts of where-do-you-draw-the-line issues here. And one of them actually is if Jordan Neely had been white, we wouldn't be talking about this. It would be considered this highly unpleasant episode if a white guy took down a white guy and accidentally killed him. Or even deliberately killed him. Likewise, not- if Daniel Penny had been a black Marine, probably it wouldn't have been the same. same um, Although I whole- think much more so in your direction. Mm-hmm. And in my direction. That would be a whole different episode. No, and the Black also, Marine would just be acting out white supremacy that he had been taught in the racist military. <laughs> you know, literally. That's yeah. literally what people would say. <laughs> and also his 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 background. It would be seen as as understandable. Um, people you can imagine the people who would start writing about it that way right away. And then also, is the person annoying or scary? And so for example, you're driving down 125th Street, which I often do because that's how you get from where I live to Columbia. And you've got the guys who are begging. They're dirty. They are out of their mind through no fault of their own. And they're, they're begging you for money. Now, I don't think that that person needs to be restrained. They're annoying, but they can't help it. And it's society's fault. The issue is whether the guys are menacing, like, for example, the squeegee men, where, you know, that could be scary. And also... And it's not only white and black. Are you talking about somebody who is in a train car and who is scary? Now, there's a certain kind of person who imagines some white guy from Park Slope in Brooklyn who needs to just sit there and tolerate being screamed at by this black person because of the drama of it, because it kind of symbolizes how black America is supposed to feel about white people. Okay, so Josh, what's his last name? Let's say Josh Gravit is sitting there and he's scary. And he's scared, Josh Gravit. But what about if it's Dahlia McWhorter? What about if it's a little girl? Does she deserve to have her face screamed in? And let's say Dahlia is mixed. Now, nobody thinks Dahlia McWhorter deserves that. But how come Josh Gravit does? If there's a possibility that Dahlia McWhorter has to put up with this, then, frankly, you have to restrain Jordan Neely for the sake of them. Or the Latina grandmother or the two Korean tourists, do they deserve it? What people are mostly thinking about is Josh and Stephanie Gravit. Those two are supposed to sit and watch Jordan Neely show his behind and scare them. 
is a certain kind of person who want Josh and Stephanie Gravit to be scared. And a lot of the people who want Josh and Stephanie Gravit to be scared are other Josh and Stephanie Gravits. But the thing is, what about most other people? The black lady, does she deserve it? And you're thinking, well, maybe she'll talk to him with some mother wit. No, no, Jordan Neely was far beyond that. He may have hit her. So I just think that we need a procedure where people like that are pulled away by the two cops who instead stand outside on the subway platform doing video games and chatting with their spouses and refusing to intervene in cases like this, including one right? where I saw a guy who really scared me and he was taller than 6'1", and he really was deliberately trying to scare everybody in the car. It, it didn't happen to get to me. And the cop was standing by and did nothing? We, he, he jumped out into another car to scare people, and I got out of the car, and I said, gentlemen, there's a guy over here who is scaring everybody to death. They barely looked up. I think they thought of me as a black Josh Ravi. <laughs> and they just, you know, had no interest. Okay, I got a bone to pick with you. You say through no fault of his own. You say society's at fault. Really? Um, I agree. A person with mental illness shouldn't be said to be at fault for their mental illness. I agree with that. But I don't want to grant a blanket exemption from personal responsibility for uh, these acts. Uh, you know, that's just too easy. Uh, you push somebody in front of a train, you punch somebody in the eye socket and, and mangle their face. Um, you, you, uh, intentionally intimidate people in a public space because you're bored, because you don't have a sense of self-esteem, because you're looking for attention and it's not your fault. God, I, I, I get it. I get, I get it. I get it. Really. The, the, the idea that the person is not responsible for the fact that they're mentally ill, but I just wonder what a society is like at the end of the day where that kind of behavior, I mean, I'll just tell an anecdote and then I'll stop. I was in San Francisco visiting my son, Nehemiah, driving in the Tenderloin and it was a traffic jam and uh, I'm in a rented vehicle, picked up at the airport and I'm behind uh, a convertible with the top down. And uh, it's a bunch of white kids, uh, you know, coming from the beach or whatever. I mean, they're obviously upper middle class. They got the music turned up, whatever. And there's a, a guy, I'm going to call him a drunk. I don't know that he was drunk. A vagrant, uh, seeming to be a vagrant. Someone on the street, I don't know if he was homeless or not, who threw a beer bottle at the vehicle that these kids were riding in. And it missed them. By, it went over their heads by that much. I was in the car behind this. First of all, I thought, am I next? Could have cracked somebody's skull. Secondly, I thought someone could have really been hurt by that. Then I thought, well, what's up with him? He's over there. His life is miserable. He's drunk out of his mind. I, maybe. I don't know. I, I don't know. He's angry, bitter. These kids are, you know, the quintessential illustration of American bounty. And, you Ethan know, they, and Julia. He, yes. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, he looks at them and he says whatever he says. He thinks whatever he thinks. And then this bottle comes flying out of him. Now, here's my point. Really? He had no choice? It's not his fault? Suppose he hit him in the head. It's not his fault? No, man, I'm sorry. I don't think that'll work. I think it's got to be his fault, even if it's not, not his fault. <laughs> I know what you mean. I, I know what you mean. And then when you think about fault, there's another aspect to it, which is that, and I'm, I probably am deservedly going to get in trouble for this, 
if you look at the color breakdown of these people, the black men are especially aggressive. The Latino men are aggressive. The white guy curses a lot and worries you a little. And I won't have it that this is just anecdote. I've been riding the New York subways for over 20 years. I've seen hundreds and hundreds of things, and I have a sociological mind. And if I were saying things that certain people wanted to hear, the sort of things I'm saying now would be considered invaluable testimony from the front lines. Well, it's just as valid here. And the black men are especially aggressive. And I think it's because, and now we're going to get back into our old thing, they have often grown up with a sense of black masculinity as involving that certain kind of swagger. And so crazy comes out differently in different people all around the world and even within subgroups in the world. And I think part of the reason that the black men can be so scary is because of that, that element in the culture. Now, where does that come from in the culture? And then that gets into why is Omar Omar. But Omarism also affects the way a Jordan Neely conducts himself when he's off his meds and he's mad. There are different things that can happen. And these are tendencies. There are white guys who are scary as fuck. There are gentle black crazy people in the subway too, but there's a, there's a clear tendency. And it has something to do with Omarism. And you think of Omar as guilty. I think of Omar as somebody who will learn the language that he learned. It's that, 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 that same thing. But it doesn't mean that Omar out of his mind is gonna make my daughter cry. That's, that won't work. Yeah, okay, let's leave this subject. I mean, there's probably a lot more to say here, and we'll come back to it, I'm sure, in future it's conversation. such an unpleasant subject. Uh, I want to talk about the thing that's, uh, I've been getting these calls from news organizations, and I have pretty much uniformly turned them down because I just haven't wanted to, uh, you know, haven't wanted to drag myself through this, uh, this conversation about uh, reparations uh, paid to black people. The city of San Francisco voted reparations. State of California impaneled a study group that has come up with a report that recommends reparations uh, paid to black Americans, uh, descendants of slaves as a cause of slavery. The um, US Congress has just had a proposal introduced by uh, Representative Corey Bush of St. Louis to um, impanel a study group uh, to look at the federal uh, instantiation of some kind of reparation system. This has been a proposal that's been coming up in Congress for decades, but never acted on. And I suppose the hope is with the Biden administration and uh, the uh, sort of powers that be within the Democratic Party so favorably disposed of something might come out. Now, anyway, issue of reparations. I've been asked to, you know, what are we supposed to say about it? What are we, you know, what's the argument? Fox News has been calling me and, you know, uh, and I've demurred. How come? Because we've been through it so many times already? Yeah, man, I'm so tired of this argument. I think it's such a terrible idea. You don't have to agree with me. I welcome your rebuttal. Uh, I think it's just so wrongheaded at so many levels. It's so deeply divisive. It's so impractical. It's so unjustified. Yes, I said it. 
It is so racist. Yes, I said it. I mean, let's just do the arithmetic for a minute. You got 40 million, the rough number of African Americans. And if you go $100,000 ahead, I think we're up to $4 trillion. $4 trillion. Okay, so the federal budget is like five or six trillion. I don't know the number right offhand now. It's been going up and I haven't been looking lately, but GDP, somewhere around 20 trillion, federal government, about a quarter of GDP, you'd be talking about five trillion. Social security is a trillion dollars a year. I'm talking about the total payout, everything included, social security and Medicare. It's in that ballpark. You're talking four trillion dollars. So you propose to mobilize resources at the scale of a national old age security program, directing it to something called black people based upon a century and a half year old claim. I know, Jim Crow, redlining. That is South Africa-esque. You have to classify your population and create legal entitlements based upon that classification rooted in race, based on a speculative theory about historical dynamics that is susceptible to rebuttal and criticism. Is black poverty the result of slavery? Okay, I can see a person making that argument. I can see a person questioning that argument. How much wealth do these people, the Armenians, the Jews, the Japanese, the Chinese have? How did they get it? How come black people don't have it? Whose quote unquote fault is that? What about the fact that the country of 330 million people has had scores of millions of non-European immigrants come and join us in the last 75 years? You are in the 19th century talking about slavery entitlement to a 21st century electorate. You're trading on your ability to throw a tantrum. It won't be fair. It won't be fair. George Floyd. You're going to burden this country with a racist system of federal fiscal entitlement because you can't bear the implications of your own failures in the 21st century. White supremacy, white supremacy. So um, if I were... <laughs> a third-generation Irish immigrant to this country. Uh, I'm not getting ready to compare the Irish working class in Boston or New York City in 1870 to slavery. I didn't do that. Don't accuse me of doing that. I didn't do that. But you want to talk about exploitation? You want to talk about mistreatment? You, you want to talk about racism? The Irish confronted it. So have the Chinese and a lot of other people in between, the Italians. No, no, I don't believe that you can weigh and compare these sufferings on a numerical scale. But I'm saying the sense of hand out, give me and pay me entitlement based upon my pigmentation would, if I were one of those people, invoke a lot of resentment in me. My tax dollars are going to pay for something that I didn't have anything really to do with. Because you can't live in the 21st century. 
So impractical, unfair, divisive in the extreme. And it won't be a remedy for the problem. Now, Sandy well, Darity, Sandy Darity asks you, Glenn, how do you know it won't be a remedy for the problem? Justify that. Because the problem is the lack of the development of the productive capacities of your people, not their lack of holding assets. Assets come from developed productive capacities and not the other way around. You accumulate wealth. It doesn't fall from like manna from heaven. You have to enhance your ability to generate value in order to be able to hold wealth. You want to just move the wealth around like it was chits on a board without addressing the underlying differential capacities to generate value, earnings, educational achievement, occupational penetration, professional development, entrepreneurial activity, the creation of wealth. So now you have a community that has chits, pieces of paper that can be traded for a moment for goods, but doesn't have the ability to actually generate the goods. You think, your theory is, if we just rejigger the asset holdings, we will solve the black family. We will solve the, the failed public school system. We will change the nature of the behavioral patterns that generate the huge amount of violence and dysfunction that we see in these communities. We're going to close the IQ gap. I don't believe that. I don't believe that giving people greenbacks will change their status of development in the way that is going to be necessary to rectify this problem. The root is very deep here. It's not on the surface. That's how I would answer. I don't know how to answer the new version of this, which is that it's about redlining and how not being able to have a decent home creates today's wealth gap. And I know what you mean about how the problem is habits. The problem is culture, much of it created by racism, but cultural dispositions that interfere with the building of wealth. And that one reason we know this is that immigrants who come here, including brown-skinned immigrants and including African and Caribbean immigrants, start building wealth despite racism in current society and despite that most of them weren't even here to be redlined. But nowadays, the good-thinking person is just thinking about Ta-Nehisi Coates' Atlantic article and people who you know, couldn't get a mortgage, and they figure that has to be redressed. Most people aren't thinking about Kunta Kinte. Now, it's not slavery. It's more Jim Crow and the redlining, more recent things that they're living... They're, they're living victims of. My sense on reparations is that the whole claim that nothing was ever done to address what was done to black people is, is false. All yeah, sorts of things have been done. The whole Great Society program, affirmative yeah. action, the Community Reinvestment Act of 1974. Yeah. So many things have been done. They just want called reparations. I think some of this is, is semantics. But you know, Glenn, I actually think if these new reparations efforts actually bear fruit, and, you know, most of them won't. But let's, let's say it happened. I'm not going to stand athwart people in Evanston, Illinois, being given a, a good deal on mortgages, black people in Evanston, Illinois. I don't think I would stand athwart every black person in San Francisco, like all 16 of them, given a million dollars. You know, I, it's, I actually, I, 
Um, I'll leave that out. But the thing well, is, why not? Uh, well, why not? I, I just want to pressure you on that a little bit. Why would suppose, you not put your yeah credibility on the line as I just did? <laughs> because to object to these policies. Well, you see, in a way, I am standing athwart, but I would say I would not stand athwart because what would it hurt? Okay, so there's this woman with three kids, and you know, she gets a million dollars. And first of all, it would be taxed, but she puts some of it away and she uses some of it to get a nice house. What's what's so terrible about that in itself? But the white woman didn't get it. There's no free lunch. You just redistributed it. You didn't create anything. You just took somebody else's money and gave it to someone on the basis of their race. That's what's wrong with that. And here's what I say. I cannot get behind that if it wouldn't be the end. Like, if that's the way it's going to be, and this Irish, Irish descended person doesn't get it because they were white and black people are black. For me, if that happens, it has to be it. It has to be okay, problem solved. We have, you know, atoned for the racism of the past, including up to the Fair Housing Act of 1968. Now we move on living. And the problem is that you can tell from things that reparations advocates even now say that all that money, even that would be just the beginning. The same people would be making the same noise, same stuff. Societal racism is everywhere. And the idea would be they better not think reparations solves the problem. They better not think they can treat us like animals for 400 years and just pay us off. They better not think, yeah, that, that, that's what it would be. And so reparations are just the beginning. That would be the, screen, the screensavers. And no, no, not if it's not going to change anything. And I, I would only be able to support this if a representative number of people said this will give us a sense that race has really turned a corner in this country. But I don't think that those people are going to do it because their anti-racism is a state of mind, not a pragmatic political plan. So in a way, I, it brings me to you. No, we're not going to give that woman $1 million if people who consider themselves black leaders and black creators and black artists are then the next day going to still have their arms crossed and saying they live in a racist Armageddon. No, not if it's just the beginning. And I hate to say about people who have good intentions that I don't know that I could trust them to let the theatrics go because they want to be Stokely Carmichael. That's all they're ever going to do. But you'd be willing to pay them off if they could commit upon receiving the payment not to uh, make any more trouble. I don't know you'd if I'm willing to pay them off. But black leaders, black writers, people who supposedly speak for us, they uh, have to make that commitment. And they, they won't and they can't. They can't. And so that's what reparations is for me. The, any, the, all the movers and shakers would insist it was just the beginning, whereas I would only accept it if it were considered the end. Well, let me, let me try something else here. I've given the right-wing objection. It's unfair. It's unjustified. It's racist. It's South Africa-esque. That would you know, be a kind of uh, classical liberal objection. But I could give a left-wing objection, too, which is that it sunders the working-class coalition that you need to get real reform that the claims of historical racial victimization, while perhaps valid in terms of historical uh, truth, uh, are secondary to the imperatives of contemporary structural reform. You know, suppose you don't like capitalism, suppose you think the welfare state should be bigger, suppose you think there should be universal early childhood education, suppose you think there should be a guaranteed minimum income, suppose, you know, and on in that vein. 
which are structural reforms of, of a progressive character that can only be brought fully into being through the support of a broad-based coalition that cuts across racial lines of people addressing themselves to those reforms. Do those reforms and you'll have a much better society. You'll have a society where kids don't go to school hungry, where wayward teenagers don't end up being consigned to a life in prison because they go from one crime to another to another in one car. There'll be help for drug addicts. There'll be help for the homeless. There'll be decent housing. Everything Matthew Desmond, the sociologist at Princeton, who's uh, your famous book about housing insecurity in Milwaukee, evicted, won a Pulitzer Prize, and who's uh, got a new book out now about American poverty that's very trenchant and powerful. It was excerpted in the Times Magazine, and he's a force to be reckoned with. Everything he wants, Matt Desmond, my buddy, lefty, everything he wants can only be gotten if Black people who work for a living and white people who work for a living and the Asians and the Latina and all of that get on the same page. Now, if you've got a symbolic identitarian politics of racial reparations, you're cutting against that. Why would you frame your effort to make the society a better place in those terms? Blacks want to cut a side deal with America so that the racial wealth gap will get narrowed instead of lending a hand to the generations-long project of creating a decent society for everybody. If you did the latter, the former would take care of itself. So there you are. I'm against it for all those reasons, too. <laughs> you know, that, that left one is good if there is any reasonable prospect of the working classes joining hands in that way. Doesn't history suggest that that's never really going to work? Is there something I'm missing? Uh, well, we need Norman Finkelstein here, my guest from last week at the Glenn Show, uh, a certified communist with a small C, with a small C, a man of the left, to be sure. I know he is uh, controversial because of stuff he said about Israel-Palestine and whatnot like that. But I listened to Norman Finkelstein for the better part of two hours, and I actually learned a lot from him. And I was a little bit moved by his, uh, by his passion. Uh, and I think when he celebrates W.B. Du Bois as a great American intellectual, or he celebrates Paul Robeson, the great uh, musical performer, athlete, civil rights leader, and communist advocate uh, for his principled stand during the McCarthy period that cost him everything, Robeson, but uh, was lending his efforts to the Welsh miners' strike in Britain and to the uh, uh, people fighting Franco in the uh, Spanish Civil War. Well, this is Robeson, Robeson being lionized by Finkelstein. Finkelstein making the point that the struggle of working people transcends racial boundaries. I think you could say that. I think Bernie Sanders, I'm not a Sanders supporter. <laughs> My wife will be the first person to tell you that, who is a rabid Bernie Sanders supporter, at least the old Bernie Sanders back in the day before he compromised and sold out to the Democratic Party. That's what my wife would say. <laughs> uh, but I think Bernie Sanders during that uh, 2016 campaign and also during the 2020 campaign uh, represented an idea about progressive reform that transcended. He took flack, Bernie Sanders did, from certain uh, diversity, uh, equity, and inclusion uh, advocates for not being four square behind reparations because he recognized that his movement required a trans-ethnic span that the reparations issue cut against. So I, I do think that you can make that argument. Well, you know, 
if there were signs of that, that would make me less tolerant of reparations than I'm trying to be. I've written con contemptuous articles about reparations in the past, just saying it already happened and it's not necessary now. And then there's also the argument that to trace black ills now to slavery or Jim Crow or redlining is vastly oversimplified. But there comes a time, Glenn, when at least I want to not be a contrarian just to be a contrarian. I just want to be honest with myself. And if reparations really is showing some chance of happening, and this business of it happening in city after city possibly makes it look like it might happen, I don't know if I feel so strongly against the payments in themselves that I'm going to keep on saying no, 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 for the same reasons. But I would definitely say it would be the most depressing thing I had ever seen on race in my life. And yes, including George Floyd, the most depressing thing I've ever seen on race in my lifetime would be if in 50 or 60 cities across the nation, generous reparations payments were given to everybody who chalks themselves up as black. And yet the race debate stayed exactly the way it is with you know the same DEI nonsense and the same apocalyptic vision of the role that racism supposedly plays. It would break my heart to see that happen. And unfortunately, it's the only way I can conceive of it being, although maybe I lack imagination. Okay, uh, we've covered the issue. <laughs> While I have demurred, when people have asked me to comment, I think I've commented at, a, at length here. I, I'm going to say one final thing. I think it's pathetic. <laughs> it's undignified. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. This is Glenn Lowry. I know the view is not going to be widely shared. <laughs> I think running around with your hand out talking about I'm black, you owe me, pay me, is undignified. I think you throw yourself on the mercy of the court. You basically say, I'm prostate, prostrate here. I am unable to move forward in the modern world without your recognition of the fundamentally disabling injury that has been done to me. And I demand, demand based on what? based on the conscience of the people to whom you are appealing. What power do you have? You're going to burn it down, are you? You demand to be placated so that your tantrum doesn't disturb the dinner party? What do you own? What can you make? What are you doing? This is how you spend your time fashioning ever more elaborate uh, Apologia for your own failure? It's pathetic. You know something else that I feel that too? The passage of time makes it different for me. And so, for example, yeah, I'm supposed to walk around with my hand out saying, because my father grew up in and then took ownership of a redlined house, he didn't have an expensive domicile to pass on to me as he got older. And that's a wealth that I don't have. And so I want you to give me that wealth. Give me the million dollars that I would have if my father hadn't been redlined. And for the record, folks, that is not my personal history, but, you know, I'm generalizing. I wouldn't want to be given the money that wasn't allowed to my dad. It should have been his. He didn't get it. That's a tragedy. He's dead. 
This is now. I'm not supposed to take that money and put it in, into my account. And especially if you're going to talk about slavery. No. Yeah. It's not mine. Yeah. We agree, but uh, we're at the end here. But I, I got to say this because I'm, I'm just remembering this play, this August Wilson play. You remember this play, Two Trains Running? I remember it well. Two yeah. trains. I want my ham. You remember that? I you remember the remember guy that. that would come in? It was set in a diner. It was a, just this beautiful August Wilson, deep, very complex human thing oh, that's really going on. It's not just about reparations. It's not, you know, there's a girl that scars her leg, the, the one who's, uh, you know, the waitress in the diner. And there, there's a guy who's coming and just gotten out of prison who's kind of trying to hit on her. And there's all this, all this really good stuff that's going on in this play. But I remember this character who would come in ranting because the white man told him, if you paint my fence, I'll give you a ham. The brother painted the fence and the white man tried to pay him with a chicken. <laughs> <laughs> you promised me a ham. Well, you're going to take the chicken or nothing at all. And he wouldn't take the chicken. And he was ranting for a decade after the event. I want my ham. I'm not trying to make fun of him because after all, he was doing ham and he got a chicken. <laughs> but there was a and if if that's your vision of a, of African American history, then reparations is your is is your ticket. That's good because that's kind of what that character meant. Like that wasn't supposed to be a realistic person. There was a message in that, and that was right. It. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I would never have made that connection, but yeah, I don't I don't need the ham, but maybe <laughs> you don't either. But maybe we're just strange. But well, you know what I'm saying? I'm saying you got to buy some hogs and you got to take care of it and raise them on up and then you can harvest yourself yeah, your a ham. Man. Other than that, you're dependent on the guy <laughs> handing you a ham, you know, and, and, and you're basing it on 30-year-old stuff in that case or whatever. Anyway, okay, we've made enough trouble here uh, for a, a session. John, thanks a lot. Two weeks again, uh, we'll meet and we'll talk. Uh, and we'll have our monthly Q&A for the month of May which we do, uh, and subscribers at glennlaurie.substack get to submit questions, which John and I entertain. That's coming in a couple of weeks. Well, and you know that if there's a ham emoji, we're going to see a lot of it. <laughs> <laughs> I am bracing myself for that. All right, John, thanks a lot. Thank you, Glenn.